More than 60 episodes of this podcast, So-Called Normal, have focused on the experiences and insights of those living with, coping with, and managing their own mental health. And some have identified their challenges as mental illness, but many more have framed their mental health in the context of just the messiness of life. In this special four-part limited podcast series, you'll hear the remarkable story of Mark Hennick. We hear his own account of a suicide attempt at the age of 15. We hear the matter-of-fact story of his rescue. And we hear the personal story of an ordinary man who did the extraordinary. Here's your host, Mark Hennick. My life, as I know it now, really didn't begin until I tried to end it. It was a cold, wet Cape Breton Sunday night, March 2003. This is the end, I thought. I was determined that it would be my end. I was in a state of of focused, practiced determination. I had climbed over the railing of a bridge. I'd perched myself on an inch and a half of concrete on the wrong side in Sydney, Nova Scotia. I was fully prepared to launch myself out over the edge and to greet the ground below. I still, to this day, don't know how long I stood there. Time does funny things when you're distorted in your mind like this, but when I did let go, since there was practically nothing under my feet, I began to fall. I remember the ground coming toward me as I fell. And then I remember seeing the arm of a stranger. He was wearing a light brown jacket. As I looked down and saw the ground coming toward my face, I saw his arm wrap around my chest, and he pulled me backward against the railing so hard that it knocked the wind out of me and my feet flew up off of the edge. I dangled there for what seemed like forever, and then he pulled me back. I didn't know it then, but Mike Ritchie was my savior that night. Sure, he pulled me off of the edge of a bridge, he saved my life in that moment, but he actually ended up giving me my entire life from that moment. What brought Mike to the bridge that night? Just at the right time, when so many others, I heard them driving by behind me. So many others that didn't notice. Well, it turns out Mike was just beginning his career as a youth care worker in Nova Scotia. He didn't have any prior training on suicide intervention, but little did he know, he was about to get a crash course in managing a desperate teenager determined to kill himself. It was building a connection with Mike in that brief moment that seemed like forever that ended up saving me. Now, more than 15 years later, Mike and I finally sat down and recalled in detail that night on the bridge, but everything that brought us both to that point as well. I was working at Sobeys, which was a grocery store in in, uh, the produce department, and a guy that I worked with, his father worked for Children's Aid, Mm. so he was kind of my in to that, and I just said, is there any way that I could volunteer, do some work? And so I got kind of connected through him doing that, and uh, that's when I started doing kind of, it was called the mentoring program. Mm -hmm. So I would go to the residential facility where the kids lived, and um, I had certain clients that I worked with that I would just kind of like take them out, just get them out of that kind of setting for a while, and just, you know, be a normal kid, let's go do some stuff, fun stuff together. What kind of things would you do with them? Um, Interesting, we would like, I, uh, like I said, having no real like, experience with kids, I was really surprised at 
kind of um, the little things that you take for granted. So like I would do things like my dad and I used to go fishing once in a while at Blackett's Lake. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you're familiar with it. Yeah, That's yeah. not too far. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I would take them fishing. Um, even something as simple as I remember like being at, at Blackett's Lake one day and just skipping a rock and this one of like my clients was, I'd say he was probably 14 or 15, but very um, kind of quote unquote like tough presenting, like mm. would never show any sort of, you know, like I'm basically nothing that was traditionally would be thought of as being childlike. He would ever right. want to have anything to do with or he wouldn't show you that side of him. And I skipped a rock. And he was fascinated. And then I showed him, he was, how did you do that? So I showed him and we spent like half an hour just skipping rocks until he could get it to skip. And I thought this is the most simplistic, right. childlike thing. And it's just, but you have, it was, it's those little moments that kind of inspired me. Like I like being able to break through these barriers with kids that, yeah. um, you know, otherwise have these walls up, you know, yeah. that, um, and it was, it's, I've had quite a few in, in the beginning that kind of inspired me to keep going in that direction. Yeah. So, how many clients did you have uh, in that capacity as a mentor at the time? Um, I only did that for probably about a year, so okay. I had three or four. That would, like I would yeah. just kind of go and take out on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, one that I had uh, really made a, like a close connection with that I had kind of stayed connected with over the years, right into his twenties. Oh, really? So, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I did that. And then the the center itself had said like you know they were looking I guess for like a casual employee and so we have an opening coming up like the kids seem to enjoy going with you mm-hmm. and blah 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 I uh, didn't have a background in youth care work at all or anything but um, they said we'd love to have you so then I went home and I'm thinking this job is kind of being offered right I didn't know anything about the job itself and which in Cape Breton that doesn't happen all the time no that, and that's that was another thing where I was like it, it's very rare that someone is saying you know here's a job are you interested yeah so uh, basically I took the job there and uh, I figured you know the I can always go back to school later to see if I like this, see what it's sure. all about. Yeah. So, um, so what were the objectives of those kinds of programs? So you have kids. Uh, how many? How many kids or, or youth lived in that facility? In that facility, I don't. It's, it's been so many years now. Um, I would. I, I want to say the like five or six. I can't. Oh, so very offhand. quite small. Not, yeah, it wasn't a, a huge yeah. thing, and that's what generally it, um, most facilities. It's just becomes kind of uh, counterproductive to what you're trying to do, which sure. is create a stabilized environment. So if you have too many kids, then it's really hard to manage right. because there's too many different personalities um, and that sort of thing. So I, yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm inter- uh, interested in that because I'm interested in what that um, pretty much first clinical kind of environment was like for you going in and, and you were doing the mentoring thing and you had the the psychology degree, the bachelor's degree, but that's really, you know, going to school isn't anything like actually no, getting in the field. Not at all. No. <laughs> no. And um, interestingly enough, like that was, I was really, I was younger and eager, <laughs> younger, <laughs> younger, <laughs> and uh, very eager to get involved because I wasn't excited about it. It was something right. that I, I didn't know anything about. Um, I was seeing these, as I said, those little moments mm-hmm. um, that I found really personally rewarding. And I'm like, uh, this is something I never would have thought about doing, right. but um, it was gratifying. So I was like, "What? How far can I take this?" Yeah. So my big thing was getting that experience piece, as you're saying, like, "What? Like, how did I adapt into that world?" Um, and unfortunately, being a casual, like, so I, I, I was doing that mentoring program where I was always taking the kids and just doing things throughout the day. 
Um, however, when I got uh, hired there as a casual, most of the casuals get the shifts that people don't want. Right, sure. <laughs> um, and f- in that case, it was a lot of uh, 12 to 8s. Mm. So it was 12 to 8, 8 to 4, 4 to 12 was the, the, kind of the three shifts. Mm-hmm. And I was working all 12 to 8. So I would 12 a.m. 12 a.m. 12 a.m. Oh, so you're going to work at midnight. At midnight. Wow. Which kind of intersects with our meeting later. Sure, so, sure. Um, we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the thing that I was really excited to start this this job, but I wasn't seeing the kids. I was going mm-hmm. in there. And I mean, yes, I'd get the odd day shift, but for the most part, I mm-hmm. was spending my time there all night long, just kind of being present. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, the odd time a kid would get up early and I'm, I'm there and then maybe for an hour I see him and I leave. What did you notice, if any, well, uh, or did you notice, I guess, um, any commonalities uh, when you did encounter either in the mentoring role or working for the brief times they actually did get to see the kids in there? Mm -hmm. in the facility. What kind of commonalities did you notice between them? Sure, they all had different needs, but did they have, did they share things? Yes, I would say the the biggest thing is that um, underneath, they're all kids. So so they all have very, very different um, kind of tough exteriors that, that, you know, it's very warranted given their, their histories. Um, some of the things are absolutely horrific that they've gone through. So it makes sense why they have this hard shell mm-hmm. because that's what they've had to learn. You mm-hmm. know, the, like, like the walls they have to put up. Just to and get all, all boys, too, are they? Or? Um, well, I worked with the boys, but there was a, a female facility okay. as well. Because okay. that, that's a very um, – it's, and it's not even a small town thing, of course. It's everywhere, that sense of – toxic masculinity that you gotta suck it up and be a man and it's it's amplified you know 10 times in in that little world because you have to be tough right um and uh it's it's kind of it is a little bit sad sometimes when you see um through no fault of their own uh, like a youth come in to a program who is maybe has suffered a lot of neglect or abuse Mm. and then they're kind of thrown in with more seasoned kids that have lived in this world and had to learn the hard way how to adapt Um, and they're visibly vulnerable they're nervous they're scared Mm. Um, they're they're also very um, they can be very polite um, well-mannered and basically somewhat like stable in terms of what you'd expect for a young person to live in a very Mm -hmm. unstable environment Um, but then the the, um, kind of that world itself is very harsh and unforgiving, so they have to learn really fast. So they will pick up a lot of bad habits really fast. So you're, from you're, other kids from other and the kids environment. And the environment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's just the nature sure. of, the, of that world of group care. Um, sure. It's nothing that – it's been that way since I sure. I'd started, um, and we do our best just to manage it. But uh, that's one of the, the, the harder things is because our goal is usually always to – to stabilize youth and make sure and give them the best and safest environment that we right. possibly can. So it was while you're working there that we meet. Mm-hmm. Um, how long were you working at, at that facility when we encountered one another? I want to say over a year. It's like the, I'm horrible with times, but I would say yeah. over a year at that at that point. Um, and I, uh, yeah, well, as I said, I worked a lot of 12 to 8, 12 a.m. to 8 a.m. So um, I had, this would have been, it took me about 20 minutes to get there, so I'm assuming it was 11.30-ish that I had been leaving for work. Um, and uh, along the way, there's the, an overpass. Mm. Um, so I was going, like, 
as I said, going to work, driving over the overpass. And at that time, I mean, anything after 10 p.m. in Sydney, there's not much going on. So it's very... 10 p.m. is generous. Very, very, <laughs> yes, it was very quiet. Um, it was a Sunday night, I believe. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Um, so we're both learning from each other. Every time I hear you talk about this, I learn more about it as well. And just over the last, I guess for context, last um, 18 months or so, that I've, two years or so that I've been writing my book, I was able to pull a lot of the records. So I didn't pre Previously, know that it was a Sunday night in oh, March. Okay, interesting. In March, and, and, and know, now I, I know that. I yeah. would have never known. I, I, I do remember that there was snow still on the ground, uh, and I try to explain to people weirdly specific things stand out when you're in a mental health crisis. Like, I think it's just because you focus so intently on so few things, everything mm -hmm. else tries to fade away to make everything else, to make the moment make sense, I guess. So whatever your attention happens to fall on, mine, for whatever reason, were little things like the snow or the railing of the bridge that I had climbed over, which mm -hmm. is uh, when you're driving to work, where you found me. Yeah, as I'm driving by, I... I mean, you stood out. <laughs> There's so right. I see, a, like, it seems to be a young person. I couldn't tell how old you were at the time because I could see just see your back. Um, on the opposite side of the railing, kind of with your hands just holding on, leaning forward a little bit. And as I was driving by, I'm like, I, that's not a good scene. So, um, but you said you say it's it, it's obvious, but I remember standing on the other side of the railing. It's only about a because I went back and looked years later, and mm -hmm. it's only an inch, inch and a half of concrete on the other side of the railing. It's not very much. Mm -hmm. And I remember them. only my heels were on the concrete uh, because there wasn't enough room for any of the rest of my foot. I and I, I remember that there were lots of other people who had driven by because I could hear them. And that's another one of those things that, um, for the, that my focus picked up on, I guess, or my pathological focus picked up on, was that there are these section connectors on the overpass, these, I guess, iron or steel things that connect the sections of the bridge together. And one of my earliest childhood memories, and this is one of those things too, where I'm not sure if it's my actual memory for the moment or just my a childhood memory getting applied to it. But when you drive over the overpass, bum, bum. you hear bump bump <laughs> when you drive over yeah. those section connectors. So I could swear still to this day that standing on the other side of the railing, I heard many, many times bump bump. Bum, bum, uh, as cars passed by behind me. So I don't think it was obvious actually to everybody, but for whatever reason, yeah, I, yeah it's chance, interesting maybe, though. Yeah, you looked. Um, so what was your reaction like when you're you're, dry, you're just going to work, right? Yeah, well, I mean, as soon as I, it was clear that it, you know, if someone was just kind of stopping to have a look over the railing or just taking right. the evening, it wouldn't have looked like that. So you immediately knew it, what it was. It didn't. Yeah, it yeah. It, uh, it wasn't something I could just keep driving. Right. Um, so. I, the first thing I thought was I need to make sure that like police are aware of this or some like s someone that's trained in mm -hmm. actual like you know possibly suicide intervention training and like, you hadn't and had any I didn't training? have any of that right. at, at the time had you done any suicide interventions to that point no really? I not no yeah. um as I said, I pretty much went with from like taking the kids out and having fun with them at my job, skipping rocks, skipping across rocks, and doing that kind of very light work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> kind of interrupted your yeah. life there, didn't yeah. I? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I, uh, I there was a, a little convenience store at the end of the overpass, and I just ran in and said, it's, "It seems like there's someone that uh, might be 
thinking about jumping off the overpass. Could you please call mm. the police? And then I jumped in my car and went back. Do you remember? Because it's probably just, I assume, some kid or something working at the, it's a gas station, I think, uh, right there. The first one on the right? I feel like was it? it was, uh, I don't know if you say the name of it, but it might have been Ken Don's Convenience. I think Jeez, that's or, a throwback. Yeah. yeah. No, I, don't, I don't think that's a chain anyway. No, but, yeah. Uh, whichever um, one it was. But so, so did you get a chance to see how that person reacted? Did they? They just picked up the phone and they, I, did, I didn't yeah. wait to listen to them talk. Sure, I just, sure. They picked up the phone and, and I just got back in the car and went straight back. What were you feeling you. in that moment? Were you calm? Were you Surprisingly over? calm. Like I just felt like this is what needs to be done. Like I'm right. just following the steps of like, this is all I can do. Right. You know, so there wasn't time to really think about it. I wasn't mm-hmm. overly analyzing the situation. It was just, okay, what do I do? You just act. And I just did yeah. it. Um, yeah. I don't remember you arriving. The first thing I remembered was you you coming up behind me uh, and I couldn't see you because I was holding on the railing like you mentioned and uh, I couldn't turn back around because part of the whole point of being there was that I didn't, uh, I say this in my talks all the time too, I didn't want to fall by accident. That was never the point. When I climbed up over the railing and, and got and back down the other side to stand on the edge, I held the telephone pole to guide myself back down. It made sense in my mind at the time because I didn't want to slip. I didn't yeah. want to have an accident, right? That wasn't the point. I wanted control yeah. over something. Um, so I remember I couldn't turn around to, to see you, but I remember hearing, I think you say, I might have just described this later, but you don't look like you're doing so good. It was something along those lines. Like, as I said, I didn't have any sort of like, yeah, f- what I do just, you say to a kid on the other side of a bridge? Yeah. Right? So that was the first kind of thing was just talk to you. Like I would, right. you know, like things don't look great. What do you, you know, like, you know? <laughs> well, it turns out you were, you were right. Yeah. Things, things weren't so good. Um, so, and, and I didn't, I definitely didn't hear your car or anything like that arrive. Did you, I assume you introduced yourself, did you? Or I believe I can't remember. Right. Now, I be, don't actually either. Yeah, I think I, I think more so that was maybe a little bit later on. Okay, because um, at at first it wasn't. It's not about me. Like, hey, I'm like I didn't sure. think of it that way. And and even I think there there was a conscious uh, way that I, had, I kind of approached you with. I didn't ask you like, what's wrong? Or right. like that's not my place to free. Like so the whole thinking of back at it now and kind of looking like like analyzing it a little differently yeah, just yeah. even that I know that that's the way I would have approached it in any scenario with someone that was in a, in a situation of distress. It's not like, tell me what's wrong. Like, right. So if you had so, your time back, you'd pretty much do it the same way. I, <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it worked out, right? Yeah. It, yeah. It worked out. <laughs> so what, how did I react to you when you came up behind me and, and said that? Not, I didn't know if you were going to panic or be kind of jittery, like, get away from here. Like, right. You're just quiet. You're very yeah. quiet. Um, and that kind of calm, quiet demeanor was more, I couldn't get a read on mm. what you were thinking or what, there was a lot of, of um, kind of open space with, with in terms of just like verbally. So mm-hmm. we, I, I didn't want to push you. I didn't want to try to just keep talking at you. Mm. Um, but for you to know that I was there and that I'm not going anywhere, so mm. I'm going to be here. Um, so just to keep, like, I, I wanted to almost make, uh, now I use terminology like contracts. I just want to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, but, uh, which just, for, for the listeners, that's contracting for safety, getting yes. me to try to 
to say that I'm not going to kill myself, even though I'm standing yeah, on an inch I, and a half of concrete. If I move a foot closer, right. can okay. I have your, yeah, yeah. You know, that, that sort of thing. So, I oh, don't interesting. So, so yeah, normally I think when people think of, of safety contracts, it's, you know, when you leave here today in, in the sense of a can clinical context, can here. you promise yeah. me? Yeah. But actually, you collapsed it down even quite a bit further into if I take one more step forward, can you be safe? Yeah. If I ask you a question, that's interesting. Yeah. And once again, like I didn't, it seemed at the time it was common sense, I guess, but that is technically how you would go about that. Sure. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Formally. Um, but yeah, so I didn't want to rush you or anything and, and just, um, as I said, let you know that I'm, I'm there. Uh, but also, I, I wanted to get physically closer to you just so that I could hear you and have, because you were, right. as I said, very quiet, um, didn't didn't offer much. Mm-hmm. So, and um, it's not a situation where I wanted to be too pushy or anything. So, very tactful. Every every moment was mm. um, kind of thought out. Okay, before I do this, I need to you know make sure that I'm not mm-hmm. pressuring him in any way. Or um, how long were the silences that that you were waiting because I wasn't talking much. felt like forever sure <laughs> um, so in that sense I, I, I sometimes maybe a couple of minutes mm. um, but yeah at the at the time in in that situation you know, it felt like half an hour sometimes yeah. between um, just even getting a response um, and what was my body language like in that time I mean I remember holding on to the railing but focused looking mm. down like that um, you didn't turn your head, you didn't look at me, you, you weren't um, moving around a lot, you were just holding on and kind of staring forward and down. Until I got closer, I didn't even really know what you looked like. Mm. Um, you had this person coming next to you and trying to talk to you, but you didn't even, as far as I remember, even turn your head to look at mm. me, it's like you weren't interested in me mm. at all. To, yeah. to be honest, I didn't realize until much, much later, but I wasn't even sure entirely, and I think this is, I think this is true in the moment as well, um, but I wasn't even sure later if you were real. Well, you <laughs> mentioned that, <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 because I was in such a distorted place in my head. Uh, I think that I, I had learned over and over again to mis- be mistrustful of my thoughts and my feelings, and um, I had experienced auditory hallucinations before uh, in a, in a much more l- limited sense, I think, than people who who are really plagued by that. But I, I don't know. Maybe that maybe that's part of it. But also, I liken the um, hyper focus of being in that place to that everything you just don't hear it. I don't hear other things, you know, breaking through mm-hmm. that you're so dissociated. I guess in that moment, I don't know. So I, I think that's where it was. Partly, it's also, and I've said this before too. There was it's gone now, but there was a. Uh, a chain link fence going along a road underneath that cut underneath the bridge at that time. And rather than being super hyper emotional, like you in some ways, I was very clear in my thinking, I thought, in that narrow place, in that I was trying to calculate how far out I would need to jump so I didn't land on the fence. Right? It all made perfect sense to me in my head at the time. And I was completely separated from the emotion of it. It it was like I had deadened that part of myself. Even to that right down to that last, you know, potential moment in, in your mind, you're mm-hmm. going to control it right Absolutely. To that because everything else felt like it was out of control. I felt like I was, everybody had done everything to me at that point. And, and, you know, what you had no way of knowing up until that point, although, I don't know, maybe you guessed, I had been in and out of hospital by that point 
six or seven times, I think, six times. So this wasn't my first rodeo. Right? Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think that most people just end up at that place out of nowhere. Uh, you know, maybe for some people that's the case, but that certainly wasn't the case for me. It was a long road to get to that to that bridge. Do you remember when I, or if I did start to talk to you at all, what I was saying as I uh, uh, trying to respond to you? There's the, the one thing that kind of stuck in my head because you didn't offer very much. Um, and it, it took a lot to get you to say anything, but after some time um, and after I was a little bit closer and I felt like I had established a little bit of trust with mm-hmm. you that, you know, I'm just here to talk to you. And as far as I remember, you had said I tried quite a few times. Sure. I've tried. I tried. I tried. And that seemed to be what you kept coming back to. So we, I would try to get a little bit more from you just to have some context. Mm-hmm. But that seemed to be your focus was just, I've tried. I can't. I tried. Right. And that was that was it. I mean, I was, I think I was 15 at the time. Uh, and I had first started struggling with depression as early as about 10, nine or 10 years old. I was diagnosed at 12. So I felt like for a third of my life, at least, probably a lot longer, actually, because usually it's going on for a lot longer than the diagnosis, actually, mm-hmm. before the diagnosis comes in. I felt like I had tried everything that all these smart people, all these, you know, healthcare providers and and psychiatrists and psychologists and all these other people couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And we were raised a, a, a Cape Breton form of Irish Catholic. So I had heard more than once, maybe this is just your cross to bear. Yeah, well, no. I don't want to bear this cross. <laughs> oh, that old chestnut. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's like, I, I felt like I had tried and that was it. And, and I couldn't do it anymore. And, and, and I think that's where that came from. I, it just felt completely hopeless. And, and you know, those are the hopelessness and helplessness are two of the key features that suicidal people exhibit all the time. So you, uh, how close were you to me at that point? If I had let go, would you have been able to catch me? I might have been able to, to lunge forward enough. I yeah. wasn't directly behind you or right. anything like that. Right. I was close enough to be able to see your feet. And that was right. kind of like looking over the edge was, you know, I, I don't like heights. <laughs> yeah, so, sure. And um, just being on my end of it was scary. So th- thinking sure. of you with your heels, as you said, on the other side, you could have just slipped, even if you didn't. That's yeah. which so. is how a lot of suicides, uh, completed suicides, happen that way through accident uh, during a during a, an attempt. Yeah. I went back um, last summer or the summer before, I think. Anyway, at some point, b- because you mentioned this, not me. How how I like to know the details about these things. I think it's important to do the research. I would be the same. Yeah. Well, and especially yeah. for the book, and I want to be as accurate as possible. There's the emotional truth of it. Yes, you know what. Whether or not somebody else's truth was the same as mine, that's irrelevant. But mm-hmm. there's also some factual things I'd like to know. And one of them was, well, how high up actually was I? Uh, and I went back and I got one of those little digital, I went to Canadian Tire, okay, and one yeah. of those little digital measurement things. <laughs> I'm standing under the overpass trying to get right down to the ground. This is how weirdly <laughs> specific I am. Trying to measure exactly where I was, because I remember exactly where I was mm-hmm. now. Um, and it was about 34. 35 feet, I think, or something like that. Um, I followed that up by doing a bit more research, uh, which I now know that there's only a 50-50 chance I actually would have died uh, from that fall. It's much more like, or I shouldn't say much more likely, there's a half half the chance that I would have uh, been disabled or maimed uh, in some way by the fall. I didn't know that at the time, of course. That's not what I was thinking. I was thinking of And I'm sure at the time that could have been 200 feet, you know. It could have, yeah. Well, this is it, because especially as a little kid, right, (laughs) who 
everything looks big when you're small. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when you feel small, everything feels big. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I brought my mother back there um, years later, too, after we connected, but before we met. Uh, and she had a similar reaction. I brought her right to the to the very spot, and she was also afraid of of heights. And uh, that was one of those moments where I feel like she really got it to see it. Uh, in your words, I think from your letter eventually that you sent me, and we'll get to that too, mm-hmm. to see it from my perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Not not just not just your own. Why was that important to you to see it from? Or why would you even do that <laughs> to come up next to me? And, and I don't know. Like, literally, why did I? Well, literally, yes. But why would that be your motivation? Why wouldn't you just run up and grab me? Like, why? Uh, you know, it, that that's I, way too invasive. I feel like that would and it would just be right. kind of I don't even know how to describe it. I, I can't even think of doing that, to be honest. It's right. like, just not how I would approach a situation like that. You've also previously said that you, how afraid you were um, in, in that instance. What were you afraid of? I, I wasn't afraid in terms of, you know, me falling or anything. Sure. Because I'm sure. safely on the other side of the railing. And it's a, it's a high, like it's a, it's a chest height. It is, yeah. Railing. yeah. So yeah. In, in that sense, I, it wasn't like a personal safety thing or anything like that. Right. Um, I was more so concerned for your safety and seeing this, you know, young person fall. And at the time, depending on, as you said, maybe 50-50, but depending on how you fell, mm. it could have been the bad 50, 50%, sure. you know. Well, and I was being, as you saw, extremely calculating in how I did this. It was mm-hmm. all about the plan for me at that point, that I have to jump in exactly this way in order to, you know, that that for me was, because uh, I had been through it so many times, I felt like a failure. When, of course, if somebody doesn't go through with a suicide attempt, to me now, that's not a failure. That's a success. That's a good thing that they didn't die by yeah. suicide, right? Yeah. That's not how I felt at the time, though. So you, eventually you get close to me, and, and I liken the, um, whether, I don't know if it's stalling or if it's breaking down or dissolving the, the um, barrier that keeps people stuck in that place, but eventually... Uh, I became conscious enough to realize that the police had arrived. Mm-hmm. I still to this day, and I've done a lot of memory work, do not remember cops arriving, but there were a lot of them. Yeah, came. both like, sides of the bridge. Were, both sides, yeah. yeah. At least two or three cars on, on either side. So when, when did tell me that moment. When did that happen? You're up there. The cops are coming. You're already in the situation. Mm-hmm. So what was that like? Um, I was hoping that um, where I had, it, it seemed like it took a while for me to establish any sort of connection with you and I felt like that we had got at least to the point where you would acknowledge me Mm. and um, we had established a a very light rapport and I felt like I was more concerned with I I didn't want police to come in and just bust in and say Mm. "All right, you've done your part, see ya and then ruin everything that we had just worked towards. Well, Um, and actually here, there's some people that are afraid, many people who are afraid to call the cops if somebody is suicidal, mm -hmm. because it can go the other way real quick sometimes. When they they did arrive, they kept their distance as well. They didn't crowd the area or Mm -hmm. anything. And did you establish some way to communicate with them to do that, or they just kind of... Well, there was one, there was a female officer that was walking towards on the other side of where I was standing, Uh and I just kind of made eye contact with her, and she kept her distance as well, and um, we had, I continued to talk to you, and she kind of continued to get a little closer to you as well as we Mm. talked, Um, so she was present as much. To this day, I have no idea who it was. We never... I never, uh, and it wasn't until, it was in 2015 that we, 
No, it wasn't that long ago. Well, yeah, no, it must have been uh, 2015 or 2014. I am the worst with... Anyway, I'm I'm trying to remember when we actually reconnected much later, but Mm -hmm. whenever it was... I had no idea until until that moment that there was somebody else even there. And you're mentioning this this female police officer who yep. who came up as well. Yep. Um, so, however, it happened. She kind of got the idea to to let you. Continue yeah, yeah I was I was like glad, uh, but I was also surprised um, because once again, like I'm I don't have any training in this, so you mm. always would think that you know I'll leave it to professionals. Or, like, right. Um, when chances are that cop might not have had exactly, any training either. Yeah. Many don't. Yeah. Um, Although they're often the first people who get to scenes mm-hmm, like this. For too. sure. Yeah. Most of the time, I think. Maintaining that contact with you was my priority at the yeah. time. Um, so I just continued to to talk until I got close enough to you to be able to maybe like arms length. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now I remember. And I think I saw it when I looked to either side. I still couldn't see any people, but that uh, I saw the the lights on the cop cars um, and that they had set up barricades. Was that the case? I believe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I I think because that's in my memory, but they might have just barricaded with their cars. But I I thought I remembered that they had set up uh, sawhorse barricades Mm -hmm. on on either side of the bridge and that I don't know how big they actually were. But I in my memory and I still see it, the crowds had had there was people behind the barricades. That's why they set them up. Now, I've 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 my explanatory model of this in my mind is that people on Cape Breton Island like to listen to the police scanner. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) To see if there's any even if it's late, you know, midnight on a Sunday night in March. Yeah. uh, There's some action. You could miss something. Right. You could miss something. (laughs) So this is how I how else would they know to come out? Like it's it's boggles my mind. Uh, so so this uh, the, the cop cars are there. They're barricaded. There's crowds now um, as I'm starting to as that, I guess, dissociation or barrier or whatever it is, is dissolving for me. I'm starting to become more aware of this stuff where mm-hmm. I wasn't before. I was completely hyper focused on what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. That's when things seemed to actually, you know, maybe it was in my benefit. Maybe it was a protection that I was so hyper focused in that moment because mm-hmm. things started to the wheels started to fall off I guess a bit as I started to get more agitated and like as I, the, the strange thing too is that um, you had it wasn't until years later when I had, had heard your talk and you talked about this other person these other this mm-hmm. uh, that was kind of telling you to just jump yeah you know just, i can just do it. I, again that's another one of those things and i'm not 100 percent certain if it was only in my head mm-hmm. like i like i didn't even know if you were mm-hmm. only in my head or not but i can swear too that there was somebody on the sidelines at the barricades there was a group of young men at least three of them possibly more and i could hear them laughing and i remember thinking that they must be drunk that was my thought at the time mm-hmm. so that's what convinces me that it was real because why would i think that if if they weren't, if it was just a hallucination or something. And then one of them shouted out to me, I could swear, he, he, drow- he shouted out to me f- to jump, uh, and he called me a coward. Uh, and it was that was the moment for me that, that things changed, that, that you were there helping to relax, I guess, that certainty to introduce some more ambiguity to me, you're building connection, even if I wasn't responding very well. Mm-hmm. But it was like that guy on the sidelines just reminded me of why I didn't want to be on that side of the railing anymore. <laughs> and, and I didn't uh, I didn't pick up on that as a trigger for you to kind of like think this is the next step of what I'm going to do. Right. You could hear people talking all around, but, and as you said, there's, there's people laughing. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, it's just horrible. But 
what I purposely did was I tuned the, the, the sounds of the crowd and those people out. I didn't want to, like, my focus was just on you. Mm. So I didn't really honestly know what anyone was saying. I didn't want to hear what anyone was right. saying. That was irrelevant, so. How big were the crowds, would you say, if in your memory, you know, how um, many people do you think were there? On each side, um, just in terms of, of just pedestrians, yeah. not uh, police or yeah. paramedics or yeah. anything, maybe 15, 20 on each side, wow. roughly. Like, yeah. I, I, and in Sydney, that's like, that's a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. good crowd. <laughs> good crowd. We'll be here all week. You know? <laughs> well, actually, more people co- or fewer people come out for some performances sometimes. <laughs> Wow, that's that's wild. And so then all the cops, I assume, are out of their cars and milling around and stuff. Too, yeah, right? and that yeah. might have added to kind of my perception sure, of the, sure. the density of the crowd because they're like I'm not paying much attention, but right. glancing over between pedestrians and you know first responders and things, mm-hmm. it looked maybe like more people, sure. but it was a lot, like a fair amount of people on both sides. Yeah, 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 yeah. In my memory, uh, I hear that guy shouting for me to jump. He calls me a coward. I let go of the railing. Uh, and I mean, there's only a, there's an inch and a half of concrete under my, my heels. I start to fall mm-hmm. pretty much right away. You're there standing right next to me, watching me uh, pretty intensely. What was that like for you? I just kept watching your, your hands um, when I was close enough to you to be able to physically grab you if I needed to. I almost felt like we were there for, for a very long time that you were going to do something eventually. And you weren't giving me enough to make me feel like you were going to say, all right, I'm going to climb back over. Yeah, it changed my mind. Yeah, yeah, um, no. And it just, it just things seemed to be building in a way that I, I just didn't have a good feeling about how they were going to go. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I just kept watching your hands. And I'm like, if he lets go, I'm just going to grab him. I would mm-hmm. never just grab you unexpectedly or anything. But I could see you had a, your, your hands were kind of like cupped around the back because the, the top of the railing is round. Yeah. And you started to kind of like let them slip a little bit more around the railing. Mm. And at that point, as your hands slipped and you just kind of let, I think, I don't know, but I had the feeling that you knew that I was close enough to maybe to grab you at that mm. point. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. that's accurate or not. But it wasn't until I was that close that, like, you let go. But when you did, I just I put my arm around the front of you and grabbed the back of your jacket. And when I had you in that position, the other uh, police officer ran over and we both, mm. she helped me pull you back over mm. the railing. With that act of kindness... That act of very simple humanity of just getting to know me, building that connection with me, and most importantly, I think, allowing space for me to be silent, not pushing me, not pushing me with his judgment or with his, with his words, with his stigma, just letting me be. That's what let my life begin again. It wasn't suddenly everything was better. He didn't cure me when he pulled me off that bridge, but he gave me another chance. He gave me a role model for the rest of my life that he wouldn't know until much, much later. Because it wasn't until more than a dozen years it had bubbled up inside me to find this man, this stranger who I didn't even know was real. All I knew was that he was wearing a light brown jacket that night. I didn't remember his name, I didn't remember his face. So in our next episode, where did Mike Ritchie go after he saved my life, after he pulled me to safety from the edge of that bridge? I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. You've been listening to a special episode of So-Called Normal with Mark Hennick. 
If you like what you heard, share the episode with others. You can always follow Mark on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Instagram at Mark Hennick. Otherwise, you might want to check out his website, markhennick.com. This special series of So-Called Normal has been produced by Mark Hennick and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford. <laughs>